Hello, and welcome to Military History Inside Out, brought to you by War Scholar and located at warscholar.org. We talk about military history from ancient times to modern and everything in between. I'm Chris Alvarez, and thank you for listening. I'm speaking with James Holland, author of Sicily 43, The First Assault on Fortress Europe, published November 3rd, 2020, by Atlantic Monthly Press. Thank you for speaking with me. Oh, no, thank you very much for inviting me on, Chris. So first, you've written a number of books on World War II and done a lot of work with it. Why did you um, write a book about the assault on Sicily in 43? Well, I suppose it was kind of sort of missing chapter. I, I, I sort of did it uh, chronologically out of order because I, I, the previous books of that would, had been a new um, narrative history of D-Day and the Normandy campaign called Normandy 44. Mm-hmm. Um, and I suddenly realized that, that actually quite a lot of, of, of lessons had been for, for Normandy had been learned Ooh. in Sicily. And I was very aware of it because some years ago, I was actually doing a, a, a fictional series following a, a kind of sort of British uh, Tommy, a kind of rifleman. Mm-hmm. Through through the Second World War, through World War Two, and uh, the last novel I did was was set in Sicily. So I'd done quite a lot of research. I, I'd been out to Sicily. I'd kind of you know researched into the campaign quite a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and subsequent to that, I was also invited by the British Army to to go on a couple of um, battlefield studies out there. So it was a part of the world that I knew pretty well. And I also I kind of I felt that the narrative that did exist um, didn't chime with what I had learned from walking the ground reading about it, studying it, and all the rest of it. So it, it just felt like there was a big missing gap. And, and looking into it, you realize that the kind of last major narrative history of the Sicilian campaign was Carlo Deste uh, back in about you know the late 1980s. I think it was 1987 or 1988 or something that it came out in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And that's a good old time ago now. I mean, you know, that's kind of over 30 years. Yeah. So it felt that it was, you know, we, we know a lot more about, the, about, about World War II now than we we did then because of the ease of getting to archives and, and digital photography and stuff. You know, it makes a researcher's job an awful lot easier than it used to be. Um, and I just felt it was time for a kind of a, a fresh account. And it was something that, that personally interested me a great deal. I mean, for me, it's the coming, it's the coming of age of, of the coalition, mm-hmm. the United States, um, and Britain and to a certain extent Canada as well. Mm-hmm. And, and suddenly you see this, this, that they've kind of, you know, Britain has been kind of trying to work out how it's going to fight its war. Um, the United States is kind of catching up and catching up very fast, but is still kind of sort of new to it in a way. I'm um, certainly into the European war. And suddenly it's like, ah, okay, we know how to harness our assets. We, we know what this involves. We know how to use steel, not flesh as much as possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this, this is a kind of, this is a brotherhood of air, land and sea. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it's a completely new way of fighting a war. And, and frankly, the Axis forces didn't know what had hit them, as far as I can tell. Um, and I felt that, that the Allied achievement on Sicily was actually greater than most historians traditionally have given them credit for. What uh, time period do you cover in the book? Do you go for much before the battle, you know, preparations, and um, do you just go chronologically through the um, through the entire uh, campaign? Yeah, well, I, I think it did need a bit of setup, actually. I, I was all for just sort of, you know, starting with D-Day, which is the 10th of July, and sort of cracking on. Uh, um, but actually, it became very clear that, that Sicily is not on people's, people kind of sort of know it happened, and, and they know that it's sort of hanging off the bottom end of Italy somewhere, and it's in the Mediterranean, and obviously, particularly in the US, there's a, there's a strong kind of Italian-American, um, contingency. But I think people don't, you know, didn't really know the basics, and I felt it did need a bit of background. So, um, yeah, no, I do go back into it a little bit. It does go, it, it sort of skirts with Tunisia, and, and it does talk about the preparation. And, you know, the way I do my books is I always follow a pretty tight cast list of characters who I use to kind of illustrate the human drama of what is going on, mm-hmm. and around which I kind of sort of fit my analysis and everything. And, it, and that cast tends to kind of go from the very bottom. So, you know, your PFCs and, you know, sailors and and air crew all the way up to kind of generals and and supreme allied commanders and so on um and so i thought it was important to kind of introduce them a little bit early um and and to set the scene and understand what that what 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 was going on Mm -hmm. and also the other thing about my books is i always do them 360 degrees so there's as much about germans and italians and mussolini and you know von sanger and german individuals and italian individuals as there is americans and canadians and brits Mm -hmm. Okay. And and the assault started on what, what date? 10th of July, 1943. Okay. Well, strictly speaking, the 9th is when the first airborne troops land. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's another interesting co- sort of comparison with Normandy, to be honest, is that, you know, obviously airborne operations were key to, 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 to that particular operation, to Operation Overlord, you know, the D-Day landings in Normandy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and they're also key to this. It's just that they are, frankly, a bit of a fiasco. But, but airborne forces and, and airborne operations are very much new to the Allies at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're feeling their way and, and, you know, they get a lot of things wrong on that particular aspect. So first, um, first, how important was Malta in, in this invasion? Yeah, Malta's key because if you're doing an amphibious, um, uh, an amphibious invasion, you really do need air superiority over your, the combat zone. Mm-hmm. And this is what, constrains the allies as to where they can go next from tunisia because yes you could go to sardinia just about you can't really go to greece and the balkans uh, and you can't really go just sort of straight into southern italy because you need to have air cover and you need to have air superiority over that over those landing zones because at the moment you're landing you're obviously incredibly vulnerable to enemy air attack mm-hmm. and so that needs fighter cover uh, and the problem with fighters is that they have comparatively short range Mm-hmm. So the closer you can get your fighters to uh, the place you're trying to invade, the better. And suddenly there is Malta, which has been besieged just the previous year. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and in the spring of 1942, Malta is the most heavily bombed place in the entire planet at that particular time. So it's it's suffered badly, but it's kind of held on. It, it, it never succumbs. It doesn't surrender. It doesn't get invaded. They managed to kind of sort of build up their strength again. So that by kind of the summer of 1943, you know, it's absolutely teeming with fighter aircraft. And it's also the perfect base from which the senior command can can sort of operate. So, you know, that's where you've got um, that's where you've got the naval operations headquarters. It's where you've got the air operations headquarters. It's where you've got, uh, you know, Eisenhower's there on D-Day. General Alexander, who is the overall land commander, you know, he's there on D-Day, too. And when I talk about D-Day, I'm talking about D-Day for, for Operation Husky, the invasion of Sicily, rather than the one in Normandy. Um, so, you know, it's it's absolutely vital, is the truth of it. I mean, it is also the case that that um, there are Allied air forces operating out of northern Tunisia, particularly at Cape Bon, which is the kind of northeast part of Tunisia. Hmm. But but even from there, that that's quite a long way. And obviously, if you've only got limited fuel, you've got to get to the island, then you've got to get back again. So the further you've got to go and the further you've got to get back again, the less time you've got over the combat zone. And it's time over the combat zone, which is absolutely key. Mm-hmm. So the fact that Malta is only 60 miles to the south and to the southeast, which is where the main concentration of the landings is, for uh, because where you want to get to to conquer the island is the northeast of the island, which is the Straits of Messina. That's the link between Sicily and the toe, the boot of Italy. Um, so you want to get there as quickly as possible. Obviously, you need landing beaches because you need to deposit your army, your your amphibious forces from the sea. Um, so that's in the southeast of Sicily. So it's really convenient that Malta is there. So Malta has always been this incredibly important strategically island uh, and has been throughout the Mediterranean War. And you know, that, that is why the Axis forces, and particularly the Germans, sort of attack it so relentlessly through 1940, 41, 42. I, I noticed, and I think this is correct, that the Axis Axis Air Forces did poorly in this uh, campaign. Did the Allies time it so that they they did they did this attack when the Axis were weak, uh, with air their air power was weak, or did they get lucky as far as that goes? Uh, actually, it was neither, if I'm honest, Chris. Hmm. Uh, um, so. so- the Axis force, particularly the Germans, they understand that air power is absolutely critical. So they absolutely pump loads and loads of, uh, particularly Luftwaffe, into Tunisia in the end of the Tunisia campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Allies managed to shoot down something like 2,600 Axis aircraft in the in the Tunisia campaign alone mm-hmm. between sort of November and mid-May 1943. Okay. Um, so that's a colossal number. Uh, and, and one of the problems that the both sides have is that if you're operating in somewhere like Tunisia, you've got to get there. So the logistic challenges are absolutely huge. Ditto with Sicily. You've got, you've got to get there. It's an island. You've got to get across the sea at some point. And so the, the Axis forces understand that air power is absolutely crucial to the chances of Sicily surviving as an Axis stronghold. So they further reinforce the island. But at that point, they've taken such a battering that there's a kind of limit to what they can do. One of the big concerns for the Allies when they're planning the Sicily campaign in April 19, you know, March through April, right to the beginning of May 1943, while the Tunisia campaign is still going on, is 
What do we do about Axis Air Forces? How do we neutralize that? Because we have to have control of the airspace when we are landing in Sicily. And this is a real concern for the air commanders. And it's one of the reasons why the planning is, is for Sicily is so drawn out and why it's actually um, quite fraught, because air forces want sub subsequent landings in the east, southeast, and in the west of Sicily. The, the ground commanders are going, the army commanders are going, we can't do both because they're they're not mutually supporting and that doesn't work. You need to concentrate your forces. We need to concentrate them in the southeast. So the air commanders go, okay, well, we really need to up the ante and try and destroy as much of the Luftwaffe and the Regia Aeronautica, the, the Italian Air Force, on the ground as well as in the air beforehand. Mm -hmm. And so they launch this unbelievably concentrated blitz against access supply lines all the way into, you know, strategic bombers, so heavy bombers going into northern Italy and so on, and Sardinia and far afield as they possibly can, but also attacking airfields, relentlessly attacking airfields over Sicily. And it works brilliantly. It's, it, I mean, there is there is almost no air opposition at all hmm. by the time the landings evade. And that is because so much of them have been destroyed on the ground beforehand. And the, and the attacks are so heavy that the Axis forces really don't have any answer to this. And what's amazing about it is is that, you know, one can read accounts and memoirs of, say, you know, Luftwaffe fighter pilots based in Sicily at this time. And they are having every bit as awful a time as the RAF fighter pilots were having in Malta a year earlier. So the tables have completely turned and they've just got no answer. You know, they haven't got any answer to the overwhelming superiority, air superiority of the of the Allied forces. And what's really interesting is that while on the ground, American forces are sort of playing catch up with the British to a certain extent at this stage of the war, in the air, they're absolutely not to the extent that there are actually more U.S. Um, Army Air Force aircraft in theater than there are RAF. I'm speaking with James Holland, author of Sicily 43. You can find more information about his work at griffinmerlin.com. If you like this podcast, Military History Inside Out, so far, please subscribe to it and rate it if you can. If you want more military history ranging from the ancient to the modern, please visit warscholar.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com to sign up for my weekly newsletter and keep up with my latest posts. You can also find written interviews and my social media links there. You can find the links to my other podcasts at fullcontactnerd.com and technologyinspace.com. Now back to the podcast. I guess a lot of the Axis forces or German forces were tied up in the Eastern Front at this point. That's why they couldn't well, reinforce. Well, yeah, not Air Forces. You know, that's the point. I mean, as as a comparison, um, you know, over the over the sort of main summer months, June to kind of uh, beginning of October 1943, um, 702 Luftwaffe aircraft are lost over the Eastern Front, but 3,504 are lost in the Mediterranean. Wow. So, you know, one has to be very, very careful about assigning strategic importance to boots on the ground. It depends how you're fighting your war. And the point is, is that in the Mediterranean, you are limited by a geography about how many men you can actually fit in one particular theater. I mean, you know, no one would, would argue that Guadalcanal, for example, was not uh, a battle of enormous strategic importance in the Pacific War. And yet, obviously, compared to the number of troops involved on the battles on the Eastern Front in the Soviet Union, it's a pinprick. But there's a limit to how many men you can actually operate in a tiny island in the middle of the South Pacific, in the Solomon Islands. Yeah. Whereas, you know, in the open expanse of the Russian steppes, you can kind of fit as many men as you can, you can manage to, you know, the, you've got transport to get there, basically. Mm -hmm. And I, I saw that the amphibious assaults, the, the, the initial landings were pretty, um, weren't so bad for the Allies. Uh, what, what was going on with the Axis powers that they didn't, they didn't properly defend against the landings? Yeah, well, the, the relationship between the Allies, is, uh, between the Italians and, the, and, and Nazi Germany, is completely broken down by this point. It's always been a pretty fraught relationship anyway. Mm -hmm. um, the only thing that sort of keeps it going, really, is the personal relationship between Hitler and Mussolini. And, and weirdly, Hitler continues to be kind of both uh, personally quite fond of Mussolini and and kind of quite respectful of, of him, um, well beyond a point where the senior... German commanders have lost kind of much respect for, you know, of any respect they had for, for, for senior Italian commanders and certainly, you know, Italian politicians and so on. Hmm. So the relationship is break down. I mean, one of the things that's an absolute um, trait of Nazi Germany is that it always treats its allies absolutely appallingly. Um, and Italy is, is, is no, no different in that. Hmm. 
what what you do see though is is i mean the, the italian military is is just really behind it's it's just not as kind of modern a nation is as as united states or britain or france or germany it just just isn't it's not as motorized it doesn't have access to resources it's stuck in the middle of in the mediterranean it doesn't have access to the world's oceans so there's a limit to what it can do you know it's still quite impoverished in many ways mm-hmm. uh, particularly on sicily particularly in southern italy uh, and you know the military is just not it's just not fit for purpose in 1939 or 1940 and, and repeatedly gets trounced until the Germans come and, 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 and support them and pick them up a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, what I would say, though, is that despite the appalling kind of officer training process uh, and, and the kind of the way the army is organized, inevitably by fighting such a long campaign from kind of September 1940 right through to kind of May 1943 in North Africa, there are certain elements within the Italian army that kind of learn through the process of experience, learn the hard way how to fight quite effectively. Mm-hmm. And what one does see is at the end of the Tunisian campaign in kind of April, you know, March, April, May 1943, Italian troops are, on the whole, fighting pretty reasonably. Uh, and the British Eighth Army is, hits a complete brick wall uh, in Fiederville, for example, mm. and has a particularly tough fight at a place called Takuna um, in northern um, in northern Tunisia, and really can't push away forward. That final furlong up to up to Tunis and 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 Carthage and so on mm. has to come round the back through the Majorda Valley, and so there is a kind of there is a sort of competence within the Italian army in in Africa. But once that battle is over, once all those Italian troops are killed, wounded or put in the sack, you know, end up being prisoners of war, there's really nowhere else to go. And what you've got left in Italy uh, and, and in Sicily, manning, in, you know, manning the, the naval fortresses in Sicily, are really, really low-gay troops who have not benefited from that wealth of experience that the troops in North Africa have. And so you're back to square one, you know, troops that are badly equipped, badly led, badly organised, and they're just no match for the Allies. Uh, they're no match for the uh, Allies' material strength, material wealth. But the Allies, when they're preparing for, for Sicily, don't know that. That they can take a pretty good bet that they're not going to be up for much. But when you're doing an amphibious invasion of that scale, the one thing that trumps absolutely everything is that it doesn't fail. Mm-hmm. You know, that's your absolute number one. So it's all very well being kind of wise after the event and going, well, you know, the Allies had an easy ride. They could have put in more machines and, you know, they didn't have to make, uh, bring over so many men and they made a meal of it and all the rest of it. They were overcautious. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you try telling that to the people that are organizing it back in May 1943 when, you know, the Tunisia campaign is still going on mm-hmm. and when they've got to kind of sign off on a plan for Sicily. So the situation with the with the Germans and the Italians is, is that it's just completely broken down, that the, the Italians, that they've shot their bolt, you know, that they are about to go out of the war. Mm-hmm. And the Germans know that and the Italians know that, but no one, everyone's sort of skirting around the issue because no one actually wants to admit it up front. Mm-hmm. The German point of view is how many men do you commit to something that's definitely going to lose? Um, you know, is it better to strengthen Italy itself mm-hmm. rather than Sicily? And... So what this means is that when the Allies do actually attack Sicily on the 9th, 10th of July, 1943, it's probably a bit underdefended, if truth be known. But the Germans then recover, they regain their balance, they go, okay, right, let's try and hold this island for as long as we possibly can. And actually the northeast of the island, particularly, which is a bit they really need to defend because that's the entry point for the Allies into southern Italy. There's no other way. You know, the landscape around there, all these mountains and hills and kind of, you know, plains where you've got complete sight over those plains, you know, that all favours the defender very much. So, you know, that although they don't have quite the strength that they would like against the Allies, they've still got a pretty good position. Uh, and what happens is once the Ita- once the Sicilian invasion takes place, the Italians are largely swept away and the Germans go, thank God for that. We've got rid of our cumbersome ally who just gets in our way. Now we can, now we're on our own and we can boss our own situation. We know what we're doing. Leave it to us chaps. It's that kind of sort of attitude, mm. hastily reinforced. Um, and, and they become quite a tough, tough proposition for the allies. So apart from the enemy, it seems to me, and you can address whether this is accurate or not, that, uh, three big, um, problems for the allied forces are one, mountains, uh, two, yes. Um, the weather, the heat, and three, their yeah. own, you know, organization between different countries, you know, communications and command control, that sort of thing. Can you address those? 
Yeah, well, in terms of, of the landscape, the landscape is absolutely brutal. It's, it's a terrible place in which to fight a war, um, as are most places. You know, I, I, it's it's one thing doing it in the Western Desert, where it's comparatively a sort of clean environment. There's not many civilians in the way. There's not many towns. You know, you've sort of got a kind of blank canvas to a certain extent, pretty large extent. Suddenly you get to Sicily. It's kind of populated. It's an island. Um, everything needs to come across, you know, 90% of it is coming from the sea and not air. Uh, that has huge logistical complications and difficulties. Shipping space is absolutely paramount. Uh, when you do get there, you've got loads of mountains. Um, you've also got malaria-infested plains. You know, the infrastructure in Sicily is not great. It's part of Europe, of course, but, but you know, Sicily's quite backward compared to kind of northwest Europe, for example, or Britain, for example, or Germany. So, you know, that poses all sorts of challenges. It's July and August. I mean, if you look at the sort of Baydecker travel guides of the 1930s, it's very clear. It says, whatever you do, don't go to Sicily in July or August because it's just too brutal. The heat's too awful. And, of course, that's precisely the months that the Allies go. Uh, and, you you know, we all know how much metal conducts heat. You know, imagine, you know, imagine wearing a helmet when it's kind of, you know, whatever it is, kind of boiling point, you know, 40 degrees Celsius. It's absolutely brutal it's like putting your head into a furnace every single day you know the heat just comes down so then you've got all sorts of uh um associated issues water where do you get your water from um you know there's diseases rife in sicily so it's not just malaria but malaria is completely rampant but also kind of hepatitis um dysentery you know and all sorts of other kind of you know agues that you really don't want your army getting mm-hmm so that comes all sorts of problems. And then the big problem is is that you know when you're trying to cross the Catania Plain, which is the kind of sort of flattish bit, but uh, in the central eastern side of the of the island, you know, which is basically your shortcut up to Messina in the northeast of the island, the enemy have got got the foothills of Etna, uh, and and Mount Etna dominates the whole kind of centre and, and northeast of of Sicily, sort of a bit like Sauron's eye from kind of Lord of the Rings or something, you know, just everywhere you look, there it is, and obviously there's the foothills of Etna, and if you're the Germans, you kind of dig your guns in there, and your, your OPs, your observation posts, your guys with your, your Zeiss binoculars and all the rest of it, and you can see everything that moves that's coming, um, and you can particularly see everything that moves that's coming, because when you come, um, there's not an awful lot of asphalted roads, and so any one coming by truck or even just marching is going to kick up huge dust of you know clouds of dust which can be seen mm-hmm. so you then zero your um, your mortars and your artillery pieces and all the rest of it and, it and it makes it very very difficult for those attackers and then elsewhere you've just got endless hilltop towns mm-hmm. and, and what happens is you've got a road that leads up to the top of that of that town and another one that leads down and that's your axis you you know as a as an advancing army you're canalized to using those those roads so obviously if you're the defenders you shell those roads and you lay mines on them and you blow them up and make it very difficult for them to be used by the allies mm-hmm. and then you 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 put guns in the top and machine gunners and, and and mortar teams and all the rest of it and there's no substitute for just just slogging your way up this and of course it's incredibly attritional it's incredibly brutal an incredibly difficult place in which to attack even if you have superiority and machinery and firepower and all the rest of it and ordnance mm-hmm. so um yes those are our big problems in terms of uh, problems of, of coalition and, and command, I, I, I think those have been massively exaggerated, personally. I don't think there were particularly um, big problems. I think what's what's amazing about the coalition between Britain and the United States is just how well they all cooperate. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you know, w- one has to remember that 7th Army, when it becomes 7th Army at midnight on the night of the 9th, 10th of July 1943, it's the first field army that the United States has put into action in World War II. You know, of course, there have been, you know, the U.S. Army has been in action elsewhere at this point. You know, you've had divisions in Guadalcanal and, you know, and Philippines and, and all over the place. But but this is the first field army to, mm. to, to be put as an army into battle mm-hmm. in the Second World War. So it's, it's feeling its way still in Tunisia in the Tunisia campaign. That was one corps and that U.S. two corps was attached to British first army. So. It's inevitable that at the beginning of the Sicilian campaign, the British and the high command would be, you know, perhaps not quite as confident of the performance of the U.S. Army as they're going to be by the time you get into Italy or or subsequently in northwest Europe the following year, Mm. because America is still new to new to this. 
you know, one has to remember that the, the United States Army in September 1939, when the war broke out with the invasion of Poland by Nazi Germany, you know, was 188,000 strong, um, which put it about 19th in the, in the world in terms of largest army sandwiched between Portugal and Uruguay, mm. i.e. it was tiny. <laughs> and between that time, um, you know, ground zero really is kind of May and June 1940. That's the point where Roosevelt, as president, suddenly goes, hang on a minute, the Atlantic's not the great barrow we thought it was. We need to kind of up the game here. And suddenly starts dramatically rearming with this, this you know, huge war budget and, and factories being converted and, you know, suddenly Sherman's being built and endless B-17s and all the rest of it. You know, that all happens very, very quickly. You know, everyone kind of assumes that, that the United States comes into the war after Pearl Harbor in December 1941, fully formed as the arsenal <laughs> of democracy. Well, that, that's actually been quite a long process. That's been an 18-month process. Yeah. And it's not really until kind of, you know, the first half of 1943 that, that the U.S. Army is kind of strong enough or trained enough or got enough of everything that it can make a noticeable difference. So there is, you know, eight, British 8th Army with the Canadians attached takes the lead at the beginning of the Sicilian campaign. But very quickly, Patton's 7th Army proves itself. It proves itself in the counterattacks that the Axis forces um, direct against the main Central American landing at Jella. Um, it particularly proves itself in the clearing of the western half of the island, which in terms of military opposition is not particularly taxing. But in terms of logistics, the operational art of just managing your army uh, of such a huge size and scale and that amount of machinery and trucks and tanks and half tracks and artillery pieces and mortars and all the rest of it. By God, does it deliver? I mean, you know, it, it with bells on. And so very quickly, General Alexander, who is the army group commander, the overall land commander and General Montgomery, who is the eighth army commander, go, hang on a minute. These guys are good, you know. And so says, right, well, you can come and help us clear the kind of the northeast corner. That would be great. You know, the trouble is, is that we've all been seduced by by General Patton's diaries. Hmm. And what one has to remember is that Patton's diaries is it's, it's, it's kind of a it's an outlet. It's at the end of a stressful day. It's a, it's a means of letting off steam. Hmm. And so he grumbles and complains and, you know, those limeys and all this kind of stuff. But however cross he might feel about it at that moment, it's, it's, it's like that email that you write but then don't send for 48 hours. <laughs> You know, it's, yeah. it's that kind of thing. And I, I think one has to be a bit careful of apportioning too much to that, hmm. because generally speaking, the levels of cooperation are, are enormous. And the person leading the way with that, of course, is General Eisenhower, who's the Supreme Allied Commander, who's, who's just a supreme administrator, supreme diplomat, and, and really grips that high command situation. I mean, Britain and the United States are a coalition. They're not a formal alliance. Hmm. And yet it works pretty well. There's a, there's a whole sort of point of contention over over the use of roads but the reason general bradley who is commander of two corps at that point is is grumbling about the switch of 45th division the thunderbirds and and first division the big red one is because he has to kind of take the 45th divisions further south and then sort of back behind the first division and he could have actually taken them north on the road that's disputed and, and which eighth army wants to use after all um and that is it's the logistic headache of it rather than being slighted as a nation that's the issue. And I think I think all of that has been rather kind of overblown, if I'm completely honest. In the big scheme of things, it doesn't really matter. And it's understandable at that stage of the campaign that 8th Army, with the Canadians attached, would be in the driving seat. Later on, very quickly, once the Americans and 7th Army have absolutely proved their competence and their capabilities, they're flung into the battle alongside 8th Army and find it every bit as tough because inevitably they're up against these, they're suddenly coming up against these mountain hills and, you know, defended towns and, and all the rest of it, just like 8th Army is. And, you know, it, it, there is no substitute for that attritional slog, you know, and, and that's just the way it is. And that's why you have these sort of, um, hard battles on the north coast around San Fratello. It's why you have, you know, these incredibly brutal battles like Troina, which is, you know, is, is an incredibly well fought battle by the Americans, mm -hmm. uh, and one in which they ultimately prevail, but one in which is, is, is brutal. I mean, it's, it's incredibly tough for both sides. So you might have answered this already, but first, considering how difficult it is for one country to do an amphibious assault, you know, combining land, air, and sea, 
And now here you have multiple countries, multiple services, and then you have like, I guess there are paratroopers and paragliders. Yeah. And you had just a, such a mix of forces and services to coordinate. Who would you say are the individuals who were able to bring this all together? And maybe you just name them with some of these names, but who do you think made sure it were, it gelled more or less? Well, at the top of the tree is Eisenhower, who, who is, you know, he's starting to really, really show his competence. You know, and part of that is, is by drumming in to everyone involved. This is a joint effort. We have a, we have one single aim here, which is to defeat the Axis powers. We're only going to be able to do that if we pull together. And actually, it's a lesson for today because we live in this rather binary time, don't we? You know, you're either, you know, if you're British, you're either kind of for Brexit or you're against it. You're either for Trump or you're, or you're against him. You know, there's, there's kind of, it's, it's, it's become incredibly partisan. You're either kind of for Greta Thunberg or you're against. And, and it's sort of, you know, what is amazing about the coalition is just how well they cooperate. You know, I, I, people, people have spent so much time kind of, accentuating the the discord i would say what is much more impressive is 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 accentuating the accord between the two sides so you've got eisenhower at the absolute top his senior subordinates the um service chiefs um admiral cunningham in the case of the naval forces tedder in the in the air forces alexander in terms of the land forces all of them are absolutely singing from the same hymn sheet you know they are all absolutely totally sold on this kind of we have to pull together we we are part of the same team here uh, and, and we've got to kind of do this together so that that then filters down and it is so important i mean we all know this from kind of businesses or or sports or whatever you know if, if it's rotten at the top it'll be rotten at the bottom if it's good at the top if, if the message is clear and one of cooperation and coordination and coalition at the top then that will also disseminate down then you've got the kind of the next tier, uh, and particularly in the naval and air forces, you know, people like Admiral Kirk and, and you know, uh, Tui Spots, uh, Doolittle, uh, Pete Casada, um, Arthur Cunningham, these guys, Brereton, you know, a lot of these air force commanders, both British or, or RAF and USAAF, you know, they're absolutely on it. You know, these guys are really good. And the other thing is also, particularly from the air forces point of view, they've been developed, developing air power ever since the Americans turn up in, in the kind of autumn of 1942. Mm. And they've been working really closely together. And there, you, you sense there is, this, there is this excitement about the possibilities of what air power can do, both strategic air power, where, you know, long-distance heavy bombing and all that kind of stuff, but also tactical air power too. And that's basically close air support. That's where your, your air power is supporting what's happening on the ground. And all these guys are starting to become really, really good pals. So, so, so Cunningham, for example, who is the commander of the North African Tactical Air Force by the end of the Tunisia campaign, his number two is a chap called Larry Cuter, Brigadier General Larry Cuter, who's an American. Um, they're absolutely just, they become, you know, best mates just like that. They're, they're really thick together. Cooter really gets it. He gets the whole kind of, you know, they, they just sit there sort of talking about how they can make this better and more efficient and more effective and all the rest of it. And it's Larry Cooter who ends up writing the post-war U.S. Air Force doctrine. And, and that all goes back to this time in, in North Africa and the Mediterranean. You know, ditto, Doolittle, Brereton, Brereton and Cunningham, they get on really well. They're quite good pals very quickly. Spots and, and Tedder get on well. You know, so you get this sort of this level of sort of coordination. You know, the same cannot be said for, for, for Patton and Montgomery. They're just too brittle as characters. They're too divisive. They're too egocentric. But what I would say, uh, and I would say this about, you know, from, from Montgomery's point of view, he's, you know, he's jolly glad to have the, the American help, um, particularly in the second half of the campaign. There is, there is, as far as he's concerned, there is no such thing as the race to Messina. Um, from Patton's point of view, Patton is just, you know, he's one of those guys, he, he's always got to be number one and he's always got to win and he can't be a loser. And, you know, mm -hmm. he comes first and Seventh Army comes second and America comes third. And he's just a, you know, he's just a bit of a megalomaniac. Mm -hmm. um, that doesn't mean to say he's a bad general. He's actually a very good general. But but those are the constraints on his personality. Uh, and it does mean a fair amount of sort of chuntering and grumbling in his diary about British and, you know, not pushing forward the Americans enough and all this kind of stuff. So he's not quite on the same peg. But what I would say about Patton is that if you give him an order, he'll always obey it. And, and he will obey it without question. 
So if Alexander says, yeah, fine, go and clear the western western part of Sicily, he'll go and do it. If he says, I need that, you know, if Alexander says, I need Highway 124 for a farmy, Patton will hand it over and he, and he will do it without dissent at all. Mm-hmm. The dissent comes when he's talking to his immediate subordinates or, or to his diary. Mm-hmm. But but he but he still does what he's told, you know, because he's a that's what is he's been brought up with that's his sense of discipline and sense of military honor which are, are are deep and profound so you know overall i think the kind of levels of cooperation are are, are pretty good and that there is there is a moment where oliver Leese, who is the commander of, of british 30 corps um slightly steps on the toes of general bradley who is commander of us 2 corps mm-hmm. um and the moment that Leese finds this out he immediately hurries over to um over to see Bradley in person, apologises profusely, um, brings him lots of booze, <laughs> says, terribly sorry, old chap. And, you know, they have a nice old knees up and, you know, it's all put to bed. And, and to me, that is much more important and much more instructive from a historical point of view than going on about what someone says in their diary. I'm speaking with James Holland, author of Sicily 43. You can find more information about his work at griffinmerlin.com. If you like this podcast, Military History Inside Out, so far, please subscribe to it and rate it if you can. If you want more military history ranging from the ancient to the modern, please visit warscholar.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com to sign up for my weekly newsletter and keep up with my latest posts. You can also find written interviews and my social media links there. You can find the links to my other podcasts at fullcontactnerd.com and technologyinspace.com. Now back to the podcast. How much of this team at the higher levels was also the team that conducted the uh, Normandy? And what lessons, did they learn many lessons here that were applied to how they, they planned out Normandy? Yeah, I think they did. And I think one of the key, key lessons was that during the planning for Sicily, which was a little bit fraught, although actually I think the the plan they ended up with was was absolutely the correct one. Um, The big problem was that all the senior commanders were actually still involved in the Tunisia campaign. You know, Alexander was the army group commander. Eisenhower was obviously the uh, uh, um, the Supreme Allied Commander, Tedder, Spots, Cunningham, Brereton, you know, all Doolittle and all these guys. They were all involved in the air operations in, in Tunisia, too. And one of the key lessons is we need our planning teams focused just on planning. You can't have them commanding a battle on the ground and planning at the same time. It doesn't work. Hmm. And what is really interesting, that although a lot of that same team that went from Tunisia to Sicily then went into southern Italy, the decision is made that for, for Normandy, which is so important, and, and again, you know, I mean, I mentioned that, that Operation Husky, the, the most overriding thing of all is that it doesn't fail. Well, that is doubly true of of normandy mm-hmm. so it needs everyone complete focus which is why nearly all the main air force chiefs get transferred back to uh back to britain you know so spots tedder cunningham brereton doolittle quesada they all end up in you know in the normandy battle they're all part of the air plan for that mm-hmm. uh, um cunningham doesn't Admiral cunningham doesn't go um but somerville does for example Admiral somerville is back in um mm-hmm. um back in britain mm-hmm. Patton obviously is brought back. Montgomery is brought back. So uh, Bradley, of course, is brought back and actually supersedes Patton, becomes uh, becomes a first army commander, and then later becomes twelfth army group commander in, in, in Northwest Europe. So a lot of the main players um, do do end up back in back in Normandy. So that's one of the big lessons. The second lesson is that if you're going to use airborne operations, you really need to kind of change how you go about that. Mm-hmm. And one of the big problems that you have with the airborne operations is you've got among the best trained Allied troops being delivered to the battle zone by the least trained aircrew. Mm-hmm. And that's a major, major problem. And it's no slight on the aircrew whatsoever. It's just circumstances. So that, you know, for example, for the British glider operations, most of those glider glider pilots have only one and a half hours training on night flying. Wow. You know, which is not good enough. Yeah. You know, that's just that's just woeful. Um and so it's no wonder that it's a massive cock up, basically. Hmm. Um and so those are kind of some of the biggest lessons. But the key thing, I mean everyone gets terribly excited about the kind of tactical level, about, you know, who's got the best machine gun and who's got the best tank and all the rest of it. But actually by this stage of the war, it's, it's, it's about how you organize yourself that really, really matters. Mm-hmm. That, you know, the tactical level 
might make the difference to the conduct of a particular engagement or a particular battle, but it won't it won't affect the outcome of the war. Mm-hmm. Whereas your operational level, which is the nuts and bolts of war, your organ- organization, your logistics, your supply, all that kind of stuff, that's what really makes a difference. And and what you see is this this honing, this learning process. Okay, right, this bit works. One of the key things that they learn, for example, from Sicily, is that actually you can unload a heck of a lot of material straight onto a beach. Because the Americans brilliantly have developed something called a landing ship. Um, and a landing ship is 100 meters long, has a draft of four foot eight inches, um, is incredibly effective. It can basically be, be kind of, you know, driven straight onto the beach, particularly in, in, in Europe where you've got quite large tides, which you don't have in the Mediterranean. And you can just, just put it straight on there, unload, wait for the tide to come in and, and sail off again. Um, and, and this is, you know, it's, it's recognized in Sicily that they're going to need at least 6,000 tons of supplies a, um, a every single day. Mm. So there is a, a huge incentive to get ports as quickly as possible. But actually, they don't get the ports until well into the campaign. And they only get around it by, by delivering supplies straight onto the beaches. And they do that incredibly effectively. Mm. And in that, it is the Americans leading the way rather than the British with their, their greater experience of warfare. You mentioned in the book, uh, do you touch on the 99th Fighter Squadron? Yes. Can you mention just a few words about yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, sure. Well, these these are really interesting because these are the Tuskegee Airmen. These mm-hmm. are, these are the first black uh, fighter pilots that are put into put into combat, mm-hmm. um, and they they've got there through um, a much tougher rites of passage than any white fighter pilot would do so. Mm-hmm. And of course, one of the things is they, they've got to prove themselves. And they've got to prove they're really really good. And because they've been held back and held back, by the time they actually get to North Africa, and, and I think it's about April nineteen forty three. They're seriously good. I mean, you know, they've got amazing numbers of hours in their logboats, mm-hmm. which means they're just better than most people. You know, what they're lacking is, is, is combat experience, but they very quickly get that mm-hmm. and they gain that and they absolutely prove their worth and they prove that there is no reason for segregating these people whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Um, and if anything, because of the huge amount of hours that they built up in training, they can adapt to the combat scenario much quicker than, than other fresh faces coming coming new to the picture. So they very quickly prove themselves. And it's a very important moment because it shows that that that, that black troops, African American troops, should and could you know could and should be used in the front line. Uh, and you know, it's another big marker on that that change in, in showing that that kind of segregation is is unnecessary, unfair, um, is not how it should be and, and part of America emer- merging into a kind of a, a new era. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I also note that uh, the mafia is part of your story. Yeah, well, it's interesting. I mean, you know, you, the, the mafia are very, very against Mussolini. They're very against that kind of central authority for, for obvious reasons, but particular reasons because Mussolini's tried to stamp them out in the 1920s and 1930s. Obviously, a huge there's been a huge amount of emigration from Sicily to the United States in the first part of the 20th century. Um, so there are millions of, of Sicilian um, Americans in, in the United States um, the links between organized crime in the U.S. Uh, and organized crime in Sicily are still very strong because of that cultural affinity of, of family ties and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And so it would be insane for the Americans and for the Allies not to use those links to those to their advantage. And what's really interesting is the ONI, which is the Office of Naval Intelligence, have already recruited Lucky Luciano in, um, earlier in the war to, right. to help them guard New York Harbor. Um, so the idea that they wouldn't use those links in Sicily is is frankly absurd. Um, and they do. Uh, uh, and actually, it's unnecessary because the conquest of Sicily is far more straightforward than the Allies fear. But of course, it goes back to that point that I was making right at the beginning, that the one thing you cannot afford is for Sicily to be a failure. So if there are people there in Sicily that can help, you're damn well going to use them. The flip side of that is, of course, it is something of a, of, of a devil's pact. Uh, and what happens afterwards is as they're trying to kind of you know, impose allied military government on Sicily, that is when the mafia, which has been kind of largely dormant in the 1930s, suddenly is able to come to the fore. And all these mafiosi types uh, start becoming mayors of their various towns um, and inveiling their way into into allied military government. 
and uh, and frankly kind of organizing the black market and all the rest of it and, and you could argue and i think argue reasonably convincingly that the resurgence of the mafia has a lot to do with the sicilian invasion by the allies uh, the invasion of sicily by the allies in 1943 and the reason that they're still such a powerful force today goes back to that day because they've never really kind of taken a step backwards ever since that time i've read that uh, the us army in italy actually had problems with um protecting convoys from from you know, basically thieves ambushing and trying to steal supplies yes. and that sort of thing. Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, it's, it's quite interesting. I mean, Charles Paletti, he was the first uh, American allied military governor of Palermo in the western half of the island. Um, you know, he had been briefly governor general of New York. Um, Lucky Luciano was, in, was imprisoned in New York uh, at the time, even though he was still able to sort of continue his criminal activities. Um, um, the first person that kind of becomes... Uh, Charles Paletti, who's obviously um, Italian-American anyway, by you can just tell by his name, the first person to kind of unveil his way as, as kind of Paletti's right-hand man, translator, driver, kind of deal broker, and all the rest of it, is a, is a rather unpleasant individual called Vito Genovese, who was Lucky Luciano's right-hand man in America and was carry, was, was running his, his, his gangster operations when Lucky Luciano was first in, imprisoned. Hmm. So, you know... When you know that particular string of of coincidences and links, you know it's not that much of a stretch of imagination to see how this kind of this sort of corruption starts to take hold. And later on in the war, in 1944, actually, um, uh, Paletti then becomes uh, governor of of, of Naples, um, and Vito Genovese is still there and is running the biggest black market racket imaginable. Uh, and causing untold misery to to, to millions of, of Italians. Hmm. Uh, and also running a drugs racket because he's kind of black marketed loads of penicillin, which is coming over and all the rest of it. You know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a dark period and it's a, it's a stain on a, on, you know, the otherwise uh, rather remarkable allied effort, frankly. So do you touch at all on, I know the, the massacre at Biscari airfield. Do you touch on that yeah. at all? Yeah, 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 no, I absolutely do. Um, and, you know, I think you do have to kind of turn to Patton a little bit because he, he you know, he, he, he made very, very incendiary, um, talks, uh, com you know, he, he would do these addresses to the men beforehand. He'd pitch up in his Jeep and, you know, his command car and stand up and go, you know, I want you to kill all these bastards and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, for a lot of people, it interpreted that as a carte blanche that, that, you know, if you want to go and shoot a whole load of prisoners, no one's going to really kind of bat an eye. Certainly not General Patton and he's the top man. So I think that was a bit of a problem. And, and in the case of the guys of Biscari, you know, it's, it's absolutely clear that they, they've had a bit of a turn. You know, they're, they're suffering from, from some kind of combat fatigue at the particular moment, they, you know, when they lose the plot and, and unleash the guns. But the, it's an interesting one to speculate on, you know, would they have done so had Patton not kind of given them that kind of uh, what they perceive to be a kind of legitimacy? I mean, you've got, to, you've got to understand that the, the guys that are doing this are, you know, it's a couple of men and, and, it's a, and it's a couple of incidents, but it's a pretty bad one. I mean, you know, in terms of the numbers numbers killed at Biscari, you know, it's, it's kind of on a level of the same as the Malmody massacre in the Battle of the Bulge, for which, you know, rightly, the Americans were uh, very bitter about and kind of followed the SS guys who were involved in that. Um, you know, they, they ran them to ground post-war. And, and brought them all to trial, and, and, and justifiably so. But, but you know, it's a similar number of people that we're talking about here that were slaughtered, you know, Italians that were, and Germans that were slaughtered by these Americans at mm. Biscari. So, you know, it's, it's, not a, it's not a great moment. But, you know, bad things happen in war. I mean, that, you know, and, and both sides. And, you know, I mean, you know, one wants to be careful of kind of singling out the Americans. You know, every, everyone was involved in, in, in war crimes during, the, during World War II. So let me just turn to uh, how you did your research. What kind of sources did you use? And, and I think you mentioned you've been to the sites as well, right? Yeah, well, I'm a, I'm a big, big believer in walking the ground. You know, it's only when you walk the ground that you can understand why these events happen in the way they do, because suddenly you're looking at the folds of the land, you're looking at the kind of, you get a sense of scale, um, a sense of the heat, you know, the sense of the problems. You look at the soil, you think, gosh, that is thin. You can see why, why mortars would be very effective here, because, you know, all the splintering of the rock and stuff would be, you know, potentially lethal shards flying all over the place, which you don't get in the winter in Northwest Europe, for example, where it's kind of muddy and soggy and there's lots of rain and stuff. So, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big believer in that. I also think it's important to kind of get your hands dirty and, and, and roll up your sleeves and go to the archives and look at primary 
primary sources. So, you know, a lot of a lot of work in the States, a lot of work in Sicily itself, um, works in, uh, you know, the military archives in Germany and, of course, in, in, in the UK as well. Mm. And it's also um, looking at memoirs and oral histories and testimonies and diaries and talking to some of the survivors and, and, and so on. So it's a, it's a, it's a hodgepodge, really. Mm. Um, and to tell the human story, to, tell, to get those voices is, is sometimes really quite difficult. It's fine getting American voices and British voices and Canadians, but it's, it's much harder getting Italian and German voices. So that requires a little bit of, um, a bit of digging around and hunting around to try and find that stuff, to be honest. What part of the research for this particular book did you like the most? Oh well, you know, walking the grounds always great. I mean, I think it's always it's always incredibly emotive. You know, you you've you've been talking to someone, or you've read their diary, or you've you've, you've read a memoir, or some oral history interview, or something like that, and people are talking about a specific event, and then you go and stand on the ground. You know, you're standing on the same spot that they're talking about, where these kind of momentous events took place. You know, all those years ago, back in 1943, there is something that's um, that that really kind of um, gets you going about that. I think. And I suppose I, I, one particular incident I remember was, you know, I remember reading Johannes Steinhoff's um, diary of his time as commander of um, Jagdschwader 77, which was a fighter group based at Trapani in the, in the western half of the island. And in his diary, there's this terrific description of climbing up this hairpin bends with all these switchbacks on the road and then coming up in this sheer rock face looking up to Monte Ricci. And, and there at the foot of the of the rock face was this plateau and there was the group um you know fighter control center and um uh, and and he could from there he could look back and see the mediterranean and he could see trapani airfield and the and the house the rooftops of trapani itself the town in the distance mm-hmm. and i went up there with my daughter kind of pretty much this time last year and um you know using his diary there it was. There was the rock face. There was the group operation center. There was the tunnel dug into the side of the mountain, yeah. which was there, where, which was their kind of, you know, air raid shelter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there was the same view. And, that, and that's magic. You know, that, that's, that's really special. What was the most surprising thing you came across for the research for this book? Well, I, I suppose it was just how beleaguered the, um, the Axis Air Forces were. That was one thing that really surprised me. I suppose the other thing that really surprised me was, was, getting to grips with just how tough a fight it was. You know, you because so little has been written about it and because there's been quite a lot of criticism about the Allies and, and their effort in Sicily, I, I, I was blown away by just what a tough place it was to, to fight. And, you know, when you're standing on top of Troina or you're standing at Azoro or Centurope or any of these hilltop towns in which, you know, over which incredibly tough, bloody battles were fought, you think, and you look out and there is Sauron's eye, you know, there is Mount Etna in the distance. And you think, wow, you know, 38 days to conquer this place. That's not bad. That's pretty good going. And and, and it, it's that shift, that's that shift from the narrative which has become rather familiar um, to, to one in where admiration for all those fighting, whether whatever side they were, who kind of fought their way through such a brutal conditions hmm. in such a terrible place in which to fight. You know, I think that's the thing that, that, that I took away more than anything else. Was there a question um, that you wanted to resolve that either you never were able to, or maybe it just took much more time than everything else. And you finally did come to a conclusion. Yeah, I think, uh, I, I think it's probably the mafia one. You know, I, I, I was really looking for that golden, that golden piece of, of, of primary research that would 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 categorically 100 percent beyond any further doubt prove their direct involvement uh, and i'm afraid i'm i'm left with lots of coincidences and lots of circumstantial evidence mm-hmm. uh, which i think is pretty irrefutable mm-hmm. but it's not completely irrefutable mm-hmm. uh, so th- i think that's the thing that i'm i that's the frustration so you mentioned that, uh, you know, you want to fill the historical gap. Not much has been written lately about this. And you mentioned a few of the lessons you'd like people to learn. What would you say overall you most hope this book does for readers? Well, I just hope it really opens people's eyes to kind of what a, what a pivotal, important battle it was. You know, it's a moment where the coalition is coming to age. They're kind of coming of age. They're trying to work. They're, they're starting to really work out. The, the, the allied way of war there's this brotherhood of air land and sea where land power you know armies on the ground boots on the ground um naval power air power 
they're in a circle that's just constantly kind of supporting one another. I think it's that moment where it comes of age. But I think, you know, what I think drives us all in our interest and, and of, of the Second World War, of World War Two, is is the human drama of it, isn't it? I mean, you know, it, it seems so unbelievable now that, that we would be fielding these vast armed forces, you know, where this conscription, where our young men are going off to fight a war in a far off place um, uh, with, with such brutality. And, and it just seems so impossible. And and yet that happened, you know, pinprick in, ago in times of, of kind of world history. Hmm. And, and I think it's a it's an undersold story. I think it's a it's a it's a really important marker in in the Allied history and their their way to to final victory in in 1945. It's one where there's lots of lessons, but above all, it's just the most terrific story. I mean, it's got literally everything you could possibly want. It's an island, you know. It's got a limit. It's got 38 days, you know. It's got it's got airborne forces. It's got special forces. It's got Tiger tanks. It's got Mad Germans. It's got Mussolini. It's got Patton. It's got Monty. You know. It's got actions of daring do of people scaling cliffs and scaling you know precipitous mountain top towns you know it's got literally everything so you know i would say kind of what's not to like and why isn't it better known it would be my my response to that did the germans ha- have as good a logistical or organizational apparatus as the allies or it seems like it was weaker yeah, it's considerably weaker. And that's just because they don't have the resources that, that you know, but they're, they're, they're beaten by this point. You know, it's, it's, they're not completely beaten, but, but the outcome of the war is no longer in doubt. They just don't have the resources, you know, so they don't have the air support. They don't have the air power. They don't have the naval power. They don't have the, the fuel, you know, so they don't have the, the logistics of supply lines that the sophistication of supply lines and supply that the allies have developed you know what what the allies are developing by this stage is what i call big war and that is supporting your frontline troops with an incredibly long tail logistic tail um and the, and the german troops just, just just don't have that so they're always sort of fighting sort of you know with one hand tied behind their back to a certain extent you know, incredibly, they fight incredibly courageously, incredibly effectively. And, and what the Germans are very good at is, is using the, again, there is a sudden, you know, the, there's a shift from, from being a predominantly aggressive fighting force, which is on the front foot and which is taking the attack to the enemy to suddenly fighting very effectively defensively. And, and, and that's a, that's a shift. That's a, that's a sea change. Uh, and boy, do they do it well in in Sicily, making the most of the of the natural defences that they find themselves. Did you have any difficulties getting the book uh, finished or published? No, not at all. No, no. Uh, um, you know, I had a commission beforehand, um, so uh, I knew what I had to do. And and you know, for me, writing a book is a three stage process. First of all, is the kind of sort of you know, you go out and gather, so you get all your information together. Then the second stage is sort of getting your ducks in a row. So that's organizing your material and getting working out what your narrative arc is and working out your, you know, your key points and all the rest of it and working out how you're going to construct your book. And then the third stage is just getting on with it and writing it. And um, by the time I'm head down writing, I'm in a kind of sort of fury of, of, of writing. I get into a kind of sort of rhythm and I write incredibly quickly. So, you know, I actually the writing process of this was about 10 weeks, but the actual whole process obviously is considerably longer than that but you know you sort of get a get a sort of head up of uh, a full sail of wind and uh, and off you go what's your current writing project yeah i'm doing a kind of um i'm doing a a, a one which is i'm supposed well i'm in the middle of a kind of three volume history of, of, of world war Two in the west hmm. but because of covid i just can't get to the to the archives that I need to do. So I'm, I'm doing a smaller book at the moment, which is called Brothers in Arms, uh, which is following a particular armoured unit, uh, uh, an armoured regiment from uh, D-Day um, through to V-E Day. Um, and uh, so it's a kind of sort of band of brothers, if you like, mm-hmm. but but following an armoured unit rather than, a, rather than a parachute infantry regiment mm-hmm. or rather a parachute infantry company, I should say. Okay. Where can people find you on the web? Yeah, I'm at griffonmerlin.com. Um, uh, I also have my own podcast called We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Um, and, um, yeah, and I'm on Twitter at, at James1940. So, um, yeah, I'm pretty easy to find if anyone wants to get hold of me. I want to, how do you spell Griffin? Yeah. Griffon, so it's a G-R-I-F-F-O-X-T-R-O-N-M-E-R-L-I-N.com. It's uh, Griffon and the Merlin were the two engines that powered the Spitfire. 
Um, so that's that's my uh, that's my company name, my one man band limited company, and it's uh, it's the name of my my website, which is griffinmullen.com. Cool. Um, that's all the questions I have. Do you have any final thoughts or words? Uh, no, not not that I can think of, except to, to thank you very much, Chris, for having me on and for for giving me such a good airing. It's um it's always a it's always a privilege to be able to talk about this stuff. Yeah, and like you say, it sounds like a fascinating story. Um, it just oh, it's seems a great to have- story really is i mean i hope i've just done it justice but but you know forget the book i mean the story is really amazing yeah yeah all right well thank you so much for speaking with me thank you thank you for listening if you like this podcast military history inside out please subscribe to it and rate it if you can if you want more military history ranging from the ancient to the modern please visit warscholar.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com to sign up for my weekly newsletter and keep track of my latest posts. You can also find written interviews and my social media links there. Thanks for listening.